The race for a COVID-19 vaccine is on. However, it might be more accurate to call it a marathon. It typically takes years to create an effective vaccine, and humanity has only been exposed to this virus since the end of last year. To help speed up this scientific method, scientists and advocacy groups are promoting a controversial method, asking volunteers willing to get purposely sick in order to test new vaccines. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Gary Robbins, you cover science for the Union-Tribune. Let's get people up to speed. What are these trials, and how do they differ from normal ones? So a human challenge trial is a trial that's meant to get an answer about something more quickly. And um, in the case of coronavirus, this is a really good example. Um, There's a group called One Day Shorter, an advocacy group uh, that wants to round up volunteers who would willingly expose themselves to the coronavirus in a very controlled test. Um, The idea is that if you chose a relatively small number of people, younger people with stronger immune systems, uh, and definitely expose them to it, you would find out whether the vaccine that you were testing worked very quickly. Um, This is different than the more traditional uh, way of exploring vaccines and drugs. So right now, some companies around the world are beginning to go towards so-called phase three testing for a vaccine. In phase three, it involves thousands of people. You have to find those people. You have to find the right kind of people. In a test like that, uh, you would take people who are young, middle-aged, and old. You want a cross-section of society. And then you would give half of those people the vaccine. You would give half of those people a placebo and then set them on their way. And, um, you know, they agree to it. So you would hope that they would be exposed to the virus and see how they react. But it takes a lot of time to put those kind of trials together. It can take a lot of time for someone to be infected. So, for example, uh, people like uh, you and me, we've been, you know, we've been following social distancing guidelines, uh, wearing masks. So it would take longer, perhaps, for us to become infected than someone who wasn't doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, One day sooner says, let's circumvent this whole thing, focus on the young expose them directly, put them in a very controlled setting, like a hospital or some other building where we could see them. But Daniel, there are problems to doing that. Um, Particularly in this case, right now there are known, there are no um, antidotes when it comes to the coronavirus. There are no accepted medical treatments for everybody. So if you came down sick, it's not like we can give you a drug or most other people a drug that that will um, uh, pull you out of it. There are things being tried and tested. Some of them have proved to be a little bit uh, beneficial, but these are dry, these are things that have not been proven by the federal government. And this is what really worries mainline scientists. They blanch at the very idea of exposing someone to a potentially harmful and a potentially deadly, a deadly um, virus without having a way to cure people if, in fact, they do get sick. Mm-hmm. And given that this strategy is risky. How do they get approved? Because it's not like you can have a human challenge trial for anything, right? Right. No, it is it's very difficult. So in order to do one, let's say that you were the head of a pharmaceutical comp- company and wanted to do it. And I was the head of a big lab at UC or, uh, San Diego and wanted to do it. We'd have to get approval from the FDA. We would also have to go through what's called the Institutional Review Board at the uh, at these places. You know, each institution like UC San Diego has as a review board, they of something, they look at the ethics of something um, and decide whether it's ethical to proceed, safe to proceed. Mm-hmm. Is this the right thing to do? That can be t- time consuming. 
In fact, that's one thing that may be a knock against uh, these human challenge trials to begin with. People like Dr. Anthony Fauci say that it appears that it's going to be about a year before we have a reasonable vaccine. And Dr. Davies uh, uh, Smith over at UC San Diego says pretty much the same thing. Um, it would take you probably about a year to get approval if you could get approval to do a challenge trial. So, you know, you might not be able to try this particularly faster method of doing it in a quick way. Mm -hmm. And are there any groups or even universities pushing for this method? Because, you know, the case... The cases in the United States are really dire right now, as well as deaths. So is there more willingness to go down this road as things have worsened recently? I think there is some willingness to do it. So, for example, the National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization have both talked about, okay, what format will we do? You know, let's really look at this. Is this something we'd want to do? How would we approve it if we if we did it? So these mainline... Um, institutions are not ruling it out. They're being very cautious about it, but it's not being ruled out. So, you know, when a pharmaceutical company hears something like that, um, you know, some pharmaceutical company may say, you know, yeah, you know, we might actually be able to get approval to do this. So they may go to the FDA to do it. I don't know of the name of any pharma company at this time uh, or any university. And I checked with UC San Diego, which does a great deal of uh, clinical trials. Um, but it, um, you can't rule it out. It's being discussed and people are evaluating it. Mm -hmm. And also you spoke to some local people who were willing to kind of offer up their bodies to science. Why don't you tell us some of their stories that you heard? This was very interesting. So the group I mentioned, One Day Sooner, a nonprofit in New York, is uh, putting together an online registry. So 30,000 people around the world have said, yeah, you know, if you want to do one of these trials, I volunteer for it. It's a non-binding agreement you know, because you really have to get into it. Um, but 30,000 is 30,000. And roughly 100 of those people are from San Diego. I called one uh, day sooner and I said, could you put me into contact with some? And they put me into contact with three people. One was a young woman who was in her late 20s. Um, she just feels that it is a good altruistic thing to do. She said that because of her young age, I think she's 29, that uh, she feels very strong. She thinks her immune system would protect her. She doesn't have a sense of danger about it. I also talked to oh, uh, two people that are associated over at uh, UC San Diego. One uh, is a, a researcher in, uh, in biology. He said pretty much the same thing. He says, I understand the risk of doing something. He's a lab uh, you know, he's a scientist and so was the other person. They have that same kind of affiliation. Now, this is an important thing for people to hear, because if you talk to older scientists, what they say is, we're concerned about younger people saying something like that because they don't have life experience. Do they really understand what they might literally be exposing themselves to? The reality is that, you know, in many uh, people, in many humans, the brain does not fully develop um, until people are about 25 years old. And some of the executive suite uh, in consequence areas of the brain are among the last areas of the brain to do that. So you really do have to ask whether the person who's volunteering really has enough life experience uh, and enough to, to development to make a good decision. It's not to say that they don't. It's just to say that it's a factor that you must consider. Yeah, and certainly, and we're learning more and more about this virus, uh, how it causes long-term damage to the lungs and other systems, as well as some mental health effects that we're hearing out of the UK. So this disease is frightening. So it 
truly is an altruistic leap to say I'm willing to sacrifice my body for science on the hope that this vaccine works. So let's say that they did one of these trials. Well, most of the people in the trials would look like you. They would be young people. Um, but what works for a young person like yourself? I think you're in your 30s. Um, are you in your 30s? No. How old are you? 27. 27. Well, you could still be one of the people in these trials. What might work for someone with a 27-year-old immune system might not work for someone who has a 65-year-old immune system. The scientists are very, uh, very adamant about expressing that. It's just because we are of different ages. The other thing that um, has to be emphasized, and boy, particularly so given what is going on with the Black Lives Matters movement and social justice movements in America, is this. If you did a challenge trial, you would need to have to be very careful about who you chose for the trial. We know that on average, statistically, black Americans and Hispanic Americans are dying at a rate that is faster than white Americans. So if you were choosing people, you would have to make sure that whatever trial you were doing was reflective of American society. This has been a problem really throughout American history. Um, you know, most trials, um, tend to, to be people that are older, generally speaking, depending on what the trial is. Most trials, there is a greater number of men in many trials. Uh, that's, that's long been a problem. Um, in some cases where there should be a lot more women in a trial, there haven't been. And that's why when it comes to drug results, it can be sketchy sometimes because you have to figure out whether the drug would work as well in, say, an older male person who was a Caucasian than a younger female person person who was Latino. There are differences that need to be considered. So the design of a, of a challenge trial, boy, you really would have to do it right. Mm-hmm. And also in the past, when it comes to research, particularly 50, 60, 70 years ago, there are some historical examples of malpractice um, can you explain some of those historical events that kind of led to this ethical consideration, this ethical kind of guideline that we now follow? Well, one of the most famous involved the um, Tuskegee Institute, which is now known as Tuskegee University. It was a public health service uh, um, exploration in which they were looking at how syphilis affected black men. This was going back into the 1930s and extended over a long period of time. But the federal government really didn't tell the participants in the trial uh, what the trial was really about. And um, some of the men in the trial developed uh, syphilis and later on when penicillin came along and could be used to treat syphilis, um, the people in the trial were not told about it. They were not offered um, penicillin to treat them. Um, it was a really shady, awful moment in American medical history. Um, there wasn't proper oversight, and it really became one of the one of the horrible examples of a medical research. One of the researchers I talked to, by the way, for this very story, said, "You know, to this day, African Americans in the United States have a real reason to be dubious about the design of any medical study because of what happened in that study and other studies of African." African Americans over time. So today it is far less likely that something like that happens. It is not often. It is difficult to get uh, a trial approved and you really have to do a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of oversight of most trials. Um, but still, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there are there have been horrible things that have happened in our in our history and um, people are, are concerned about those things. 
And also, where do non-vaccine treatments stand right now? Because vaccines aren't the only way to fight disease. So you're talking about therapeutics, perhaps drugs uh, that might help someone who's sick. There is better news to report there on two fronts. Again, there is no one drug uh, that will cure someone or significantly bring something, someone back. But, you know, we're keeping close uh, watch of the pharmaceutical companies, and there are a lot of trials going on, and there is some data that does appear to be uh, promising with a variety of drugs. Now, this is where one has to be careful. There are phase one trials, phase two, phase three. Phase one is just a few people, a handful of people. You're You're testing really only for safety. If that works, you go on to phase two. There's a larger number of people. Um, and, um, you know, if it's safe and promising, then you generally go on to phase three, which is a very, very long and expensive thing. But we need to keep in mind that, yeah, really most phase three trials fail. Uh, most drug trials fail. So while we have things right now that do look promising, many things will fail. The upside about this is that the, there has never been a time in human history when more people have been working to resolve one medical issue more than what they're trying to do right here. There were enormous resources brought to bear on the HIV AIDS crisis. And a lot of the uh, ultimate solutions came right out of here, out of, a, out of La Jolla. Uh, but what we're witnessing right now is extraordinary in human history. Mm-hmm. And also on that point, uh, in an article yesterday published by The Atlantic, Ed Young writes that many medical professionals are becoming burnt out at the stress of treating people from COVID-19. This is his cases, hospitalizations have been on the rise for several weeks. So given that information, is this burnout also at risk within the research community or is their fight you know, different than what doctors are facing? I think that the uh, burnout in that industry is also a really deep um, thing. I spend a lot of my life with researchers at place like, places like UC San Diego, the Salk Institute, um, Sanford Burnham, um, Scripps Research, and these people are working exhaustive hours, uh, often from home. Uh, many times they cannot get in their labs. Like at UC San Diego right now, many of the labs are not fully open. Some are 25% open. There's been such an enormous dis- disruption. But these are good human beings that are trying to deal with a major public health uh, crisis. And they're working, like doctors, they're working extraordinary hours to try to solve things. Um, When I see them, the thing that I always notice is they look exhausted. Uh, Mm -hmm. They really do. Um, So, yeah, burnout is a really, really bad problem. And, And I don't know how you deal with it, really. Um, at a time like this because so many people, you know, the, the virus is surging. The number of people who are dying is, has, has gone down or, or has remained flat in some areas. But we, you know, I wish people would stop saying that in some way because there's something to consider. What if it's your parent? What if it's your girlfriend? What if it's your best friend? Maybe, the, maybe fewer people are, will die over the short term but people are still dying or having horrific medical problems. And some of the scientific literature we're seeing now is talking about how these problems aren't going away really fast. Like after a flu, they they are devastating the human body in many ways. So we have this big surge. um, And right now the percentage of people who are testing positive is increased. We were actually doing very well Mm -hmm. comparatively in San Diego County. Now we are not doing well. 
people are saying, well, I don't have to wear a mask because most of those people won't die. That is not the way to look at it. It just, it, it just is not. Yeah, it's certainly strange that in society we've decided to put the bar literally on the floor to say if you survive, that's good. While we don't know the long-term effects of this, and this is something that America moving forward is going to have to deal with because we're going to have millions of Americans living with these lifelong problems for the rest of this country's existence, this whole generation. So this is like, you know, just as the Great Depression caused last longing scars, COVID-19 will as well. You know, I hate to use that phrase, the perfect storm. What, in a sense, that's what we're dealing with right here because, you know, as we entered January, the country was doing very well economically, things were moving along, and then COVID came along. And we didn't recognize or react as quickly as we should as a nation. Everybody agrees with that. But then it hit with devastating force. And we went into March and all of us kind of just like sealed up in our homes. And as some places were beginning to come out of it, to open up like in phase one, then we had the situation with George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Movement and the social justice. So we've had demonstrations um, all across the country. So you, you came out of this hiding hole to go into this big period of um, social unrest, which is continuing to go on. And we're also in the middle, middle of a presidential campaign. And also uh, in the middle of the economy losing millions of jobs. So you put all of those things together and you have people who are extremely stressed out and scared and worried. And so people are on edge and it makes it difficult to get people to come together around one particular thing when you're fighting three or four different things. Mm -hmm. It's like our national immune system is under siege as well. Yeah, we do. I think, you know, I see it in supermarkets, for example, in the way that people walk. I see it on the uh, bike path here near my home. Some people are kind of, uh, will tense up when they see another person coming, even if the person has a uh, mask on. Um, it's like we, we don't know to what degree we're safe at all, or we don't know what's coming next. And um, all of the news, you know, as a newsman, I feel this too. It's like, every time I turn on anything to work, all the news is bad. And we need to give some, we need to give the public some reminders that on balance, there is more in our world that is good than it is bad. At the moment, we're being overwhelmed by the bad and we have to fight our way through it. But as a society, there is far more that is good than is bad, and we will get back to that. It's just that we're we're in the middle of the of these things right now, and they're so hard. Mm -hmm. All right, Gary Robbins, thank you so much. Thanks, appreciate it. In other news, following a record high proportion of positive COVID nineteen tests on Tuesday, Wednesday's numbers returned to patterns previously seen in the county. Another 274 cases were confirmed, bringing the region's total case count to 17,852. So far, 406 San Diegans have died. Hospitalizations are increasing in the county, as hospitalizations tend to lag positive tests. And statewide, California broke the record for the highest number of daily positive cases. California cases are now on pace to double every 24.8 days, a number that is used by experts to measure how quickly the virus is spreading. As of Wednesday afternoon, the state had 284,691 coronavirus cases. 
Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. If you're curious about how Greater San Diego is working toward building a new future after pandemic and protests, listen to the UT's Luis Cruz on Together San Diego. Every weekday afternoon, join in on conversations with activists, nonprofits, and companies who are finding out ways this moment can change San Diego for the better. Listen in on Facebook. For a guide to all of our live streaming programming, check out the schedule on uniontrib.com. Until next time.